All right, welcome back to the Know Thyself History podcast and our series, our new series, on the great mysteries of history. Going to begin with a poem. I don't know if any of you have ever heard this before, but it's from Alfred Lord Tennyson, and it is found on a memorial to Sir John Franklin at Westminster Abbey, and it says, Not here, the white north has thy bones, and thou, heroic sailor soul, art passing on thine happier voyage now toward no earthly pole. Sir John Franklin had a memorial at Westminster Abbey, and this poem written because his bones were, of course, had by the white north. And to this very day, the White North has the bones of Sir John Franklin. We're going to begin our series on the mysteries of history with an event that is one of the greatest sensations of its age. You probably already know something about it, because even today, this event captures the imagination of thousands, probably millions. In fact, it continues to inspire TV series, documentaries, novels, music, and poetry. In fact, Photographs of the mummified remains of one of this expedition's members, so well-preserved, so disconcerting, that they inspired several songs and poems. Specifically, the song The Frozen Man by James Taylor, Stranger in a Strange Land by Iron Maiden, were inspired by John Torrington's Mummy. And so this is an event that continues to stoke our imagination and touch something deep inside of us to this very day. And yet, as well-known and as publicized as the event is, it's still shrouded in mystery for many reasons, and we will get to that. I'm speaking, of course, of the ill-fated Franklin Expedition, what is known as Franklin's Lost Expedition. A British voyage of Arctic exploration leaves England in 1845 and is never seen again. Two ships, Captain Sir John Franklin, 129 men, lost. An unprecedented catastrophe in hundreds of years of British exploration. And it came as a terrible shock to Victorian England. Let's talk about why. Look at the condition of the British Royal Navy in the early 1800s. They are unrivaled. So the two American wars are over. France is in disarray. Napoleon was defeated in 1815. And since that time, France has really not been very stable. Every single leader since Napoleon of France has had to spend part of his life in exile. You could argue that the Spanish Armada was never the same since 1588 when it was defeated by Drake. Portugal has not recovered from the Lisbon earthquake. The Dutch East Indies Company pretty much fell apart at the end of the 18th century. And so the point of all this is that the British Royal Navy has no one to fight It has a lot of resources and a lot of time to build itself into an unmatched force. And with no wars to fight, it can concentrate on global exploration and trade routes. And that's what it does. That's where the prestige and the money are. So in this fever of discovery of the early 1800s, the most sought-after prize, at least by the British, was what's called the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage is a water route over or through North America. And since the 1500s, several European countries have been looking for this passage. And as of 1845, no one had succeeded in finding it. It's one of the most severe maritime challenges on the planet. The route is 500 miles north of the Arctic Circle. It's less than 1,200 miles from the North Pole itself. And it consists of a series of torturous passageways between frozen, godforsaken Canadian islands. In total, from east to west, it's about 900 miles wide, from north of Baffin Island to the area just above Alaska. That's what they had to get through. 
And that wasn't the whole of it. Just to get to Baffin Island itself from Greenland required you to pass through thousands of icebergs, some of which were 300 feet high. So even getting to the Northwest Passage entry point was hazardous in and of itself. I mean, if an iceberg can sink the Titanic, imagine what it could do to one of the small wooden sailing vessels of the time. Once you got to the Northwest Passage, there were several hazards. One is you could just be caught or beset, it's called, in ice. The other is you could run aground on shallow areas. These were uncharted waters. All kinds of hazards awaited you. Once you exit, if you did make it through the Northwest Passage, exiting on the Alaska side, you run into the same icebergs you would find on the Atlantic side. So this was obviously a formidable challenge. So why, you ask, would anybody attempt that? What made it worth it? Well, the Panama Canal didn't open until 1914. Suez Canal didn't open until 1869. So to get from Northern Europe to the Pacific Ocean, and all, of course, the treasures and trade of China and Eastern Asia, what they called the Orient. By the way, the word Orient is not in use commonly anymore. It is a Latin word that means the area where the sun rises. So it's just the Latin word for the East. And it contrasts with the Occident, which is where the sun goes down, the West. So back then they called it the Orient. They wanted a sea route that could potentially take months off of this journey. Because if you went around the Cape of Good Hope to the Indian Ocean at the tip of South Africa, that was a 12,700 knots, nautical miles, about 15,000 regular mile trip. And it could easily take about six months just to get to Hong Kong. So when you said goodbye to a sailor going to Hong Kong and back for a trade mission, you would see them again, possibly in 9 to 12 months. Now, if you went around Cape Horn at the tip of South America, a much more stormy and dangerous route, that took even longer. That was 22,000 regular miles, or about 16,800 knots. That would take over six months often. And again, a very dangerous passage. Rounding the Horn, as it was called, was a very dangerous venture. But according to their reckoning, through the Northwest Passage, the trip to Hong Kong from England would only be about 8,000 miles instead of about 17 or 18,000 miles. So the prize was great. Not to mention the fact that they would have the prestige and honor of exploring one of the last uncharted waters, becoming some of the great seafarers in history by discovering this Northwest Passage. So it was no wonder that it had been searched for for 300 years. That's how long people had been searching for this Northwest Passage, over 300 years. This passage had captured the imagination of some of the world's most famous explorers. Jacques Cartier, Sir Francis Drake, Captain James Cook, all of them dreamed of discovering a Northwest Passage. In fact, Henry Hudson, for whom the bay is named, Henry Hudson, his son, and seven others were cast adrift in a small boat by a mutinous crew in 1611, when his discovery of Hudson Bay proved not to be a Northwest Passage, but just an icy death trap. So knowledge of this Arctic Passage came very, very slowly, over hundreds of years. They had to gather information from the ships that attempted the crossing, from people who attempted a land survey and exploration of the region. And in in a historical note, it wouldn't be until 1906, almost 400 years after people started searching for the Northwest Passage, when Roald Amundsen, a Norwegian explorer, would finally conquer the Northwest Passage. But in all this time, in all these 400 years, the worst tragedy of all, and with it the greatest mystery, came when Sir John Franklin and 128 other men boarded the Erebus and the Terror, sailed into the Northwest Passage, and disappeared from the face of the earth. This expedition, the Franklin Expedition, 
was the 19th time that Great Britain alone had officially sought a route through the Northwest Passage. We do know quite a bit about the Franklin expedition until they disappeared into the Northwest Passage. They were commanded by the Captain Sir John Franklin. Captain Sir John Franklin was 59 years old. He was about to turn 60 when the expedition left. He had just returned from a disastrous stint to Tasmania as governor. Now, we call it Tasmania, but in those days, the convicts who were sent there called it Van Diemen's Land, or Van Diemen's Land, if you're a little more cultured. So I've looked long and hard to try to figure out what happened with Sir John Franklin when he was in Tasmania that caused him to return in disgrace to England. Van Diemen's Land was a penal colony. One of the problems of being governor there was trying to find a way to assimilate the ex-convicts back into society. Well, Sir John Franklin's answer to this was to create almost a caste system. That's right, the Franklins devised a grading system of four levels for suitable association. You were not to associate from one level to another. This offended pretty much everyone, apart from those in the elite group, and it led to a lot of unhappiness. So if you weren't in the elite group, if you were in one of those lower levels, of course you're going to be offended by that. Despite the caste system that Franklin promoted, there's a lot of evidence, too, that he was sympathetic to the plight of the convicts. And he instituted some reforms in their behalf, as long as they stayed in their place. So, of course, he offended the conservative elements of society by his kindness to the convicts. He offended the more progressive elements of society by this caste system that he promoted. And as a consequence, a lot of bad reports reached England and Sir John Franklin is recalled. He's ousted. And that's unfortunate because Sir John Franklin was a pretty heroic figure. He went to sea first at the age of 14. By the age of 18, he had seen combat. He had seen a sea battle on the South China Sea. In 1805, by the age of 19, he was fighting with the British fleet against Napoleon at the Battle of Trafalgar. By the ripe old age of 26, he was already a battle-hardened veteran, and he was fighting against the United States in the War of 1812. In fact, he was wounded in December of 1814, and thus became a decorated soldier. And it was then that he caught the eye of the Second Secretary of the Admiralty, Sir John Barrow, who had big plans for this brave young lieutenant. And it wasn't just in battle that Franklin distinguished himself. In fact, he was a great explorer. By the time he was 15 years old, he had circumnavigated Australia with Captain Flinders. And by the time he went on his 1845 expedition, it would actually be the third or fourth time he'd been to the Arctic. It wasn't just the balmy waters off Australia that Sir John Franklin had sailed in. In fact, in the summer of 1817, when Sir John Franklin was 31 years old, his sponsor, Sir John Barrow, sent him to the Arctic. They learned that there would be very little ice in the summer of 1817. They thought it was a perfect time to attempt maybe one of the most brazen ideas in the history of Arctic exploration. They wanted to sail right over the top of the North Pole. And Sir John Franklin was chosen as one of the captains for this expedition. Four ships left. They were all turned back for various reasons. Captain Franklin's ship, the Trent, was stopped by violent storms and pack ice. Returned to England, having not accomplished his goal of sailing right over the top of the North Pole. Kind of a hopeful task, if you ask me. But that gives you an idea of the kind of hubris we were talking about. The confidence that the Royal Navy had in its abilities to navigate Arctic waters. So after that expedition fails and they're turned back to England, a year later, Franklin is 32. He is this time appointed to command an overland expedition to northern Canada to explore the Arctic regions of northern Canada. That party leaves in 1819, and its fate is much, much worse than the shipborne expedition. This is an unmitigated disaster. They were supposed to travel from the Hudson Bay area 
to the Coppermine River Delta on the Arctic Ocean. There they would find a base camp, set up camp, and from there they would go around exploring. They didn't even reach their base camp. That's how fast disaster struck. Before they reached base camp, cold weather set in, the canoes fell apart, They had very scanty provisions. They were left without food, and they had to try to get out alive on foot. Conditions were so bad on this expedition that one of the party allegedly killed and ate several of the others. Franklin and some of the other officers and men only survived by eating their own shoe leather. Now, we talked about how that could happen during the Donner Party episode. People had to eat their belts, hides, things like that, because they ran out of food. That's how Franklin survived. It wasn't until Yellowknife guides found this party and saved them with food and supplies that they were rescued. By the time Franklin got back to England, he had earned what I would consider kind of an insulting nickname of the man who ate his boots. That's what he was known as in the British press and in cultured society as the man who ate his boots. And so even though that's a little bit of a barbed nickname, he was a hero to many of the people in England. He was considered a heroic adventurer. Now, at the time of the ill-fated Franklin expedition, Sir John Franklin was married to his second wife, Lady Jane Franklin. His first wife was a poetess who had died of tuberculosis two years after marrying Captain Franklin. His second wife, Lady Jane Franklin, was an extraordinary woman. She was a strong, determined woman. She wanted him to rehabilitate his image after that disaster in Van Diemen's Land. Having a good name was very important to the Victorians. She wanted to rehabilitate his image. What better way than to go back and become the first captain to successfully navigate the Northwest Passage, one of the great maritime achievements in history? And so when the idea of trying again for the Northwest Passage was presented to the Royal Navy, Captain Sir John Franklin enthusiastically signed up and his wife supported him. The interesting thing is he was not the first choice of the Admiralty. In fact, the Royal Navy wanted to send a much younger and possibly a little bit more capable man. And in fact, the Admiralty's first choice, which is James Ross, the great Antarctic explorer, they wanted him to lead this expedition, but he said, no, I'm too old. I'm 44 years old. I'm not going to do it. And yet here's Franklin at 59 volunteering for this arduous journey. You have to wonder what was wrong with him. How do you even contemplate going back to a place where you froze and starved and had to eat your own shoes? You know already that it can be a death trap. Why would you want to go back at the ripe old age of 59? And all I can say is such is the indomitable mindset of Captain Sir John Franklin. So when two or three other people refused or were not available, John Franklin was appointed to lead the expedition. Now I will say this, if you see some of the representations of John Franklin in popular media, novels, TV shows, etc., he comes across as an amiable old bumbler, somewhat incompetent, overly jovial and cheerful. But what did his men think of him? And I have to say that their opinion was uniformly positive. He was greatly admired. According to Lieutenant James Fitzjames, who was his undercaptain on the Erebus, he wrote this letter from Greenland and said this about John Franklin, quote, You have no idea how happy we all feel. We are very fond of Sir John. He is anything but nervous and fidgety. He is full of life and energy and kindness. We will toast his health when we reach the other side. Everyone believes we will make it through in a season though I hope we are forced to stay at least one winter in the ice, end quote. Boy, what an ominous hope that turned out to be. 
But the point is, we know from several accounts that Franklin was gregarious, respected, and even loved by his men. In fact, the only complaint you'll get is that he did not allow swearing or drunkenness on his ships. He was known as a devout Christian and ran a pretty tight moral order on his ships. Now, at the center of this story are the two ships, the Erebus and the Terror. Now, those sound like two pretty unlucky names, Erebus being the Greek equivalent of purgatory, where the souls wait before entering Hades, and Terror, of course, being Terror. But despite these unfortunate names, they were actually pretty impressive vessels. In fact, technologically advanced. These were originally designed as bomb ships, so they were reinforced. They were designed to carry heavy cannons to bombard shore targets from the sea. So they were reinforced to take that heavy recoil from these big guns. In some places, the wood was eight feet thick on these ships. And then, before they made this voyage, they had been reinforced with steel plating in the front. So they were icebreakers. They were early icebreakers. And they'd already been on a very successful four-year voyage to the Antarctic. Between 1839 and 1843, James Clark Ross, the same man who refused to seek the Northwest Passage during this expedition, had led them to Antarctica on a famous voyage. In fact, to this day, if you look at a map of Antarctica, you can find Mount Erebus and Mount Terra, and they are named after these two ships. In 1845, the Erebus was 19 years old. Terra was 32 years old. That might seem a little old, but they had proven to be sturdy, reliable vessels. Now, for the Franklin expedition, they had been fitted with 20-horsepower steam engines. These could propel them at about four knots. This was supposed to be able to push them through ice-bound waters, but of course, that wouldn't be nearly strong enough to break any significant ice. But when there was no wind, they could still make progress. That's the point. The steam from these steam engines also provided them with heating and through a condensation process could make fresh water out of seawater so these sailors could have something to drink. So these were technologically advanced ships. And they also considered the comfort and sanity of the crew because they had an organ, they had a library of over a thousand books and other diversions for the men. There was a monkey, a cat, and a dog on the ships. The dog was well beloved, the monkey not so much. But the other thing that these ships carried was enough food for three years. Canning was a new process, but it was the obvious solution to all the difficulties encountered with shortage of food rations on these Arctic voyages. They had enough canned food to cover 130 men for three full years. So that's a lot of food, but these ships were decked out and they were very well provisioned to make this journey. That's why optimism abounded. That's why their spirits were so high. What could possibly go wrong when they are so well prepared for this voyage? It's true that most of the men on these ships did not have Arctic experience, but the commanders of the vessels did. Sir John Franklin himself was also captain of the Erebus. The undercaptain was a man named James Fitzjames, very young, who admired Sir John greatly. The commander of the Terror was a man named Francis Crozier, a man of considerable ability. He probably should have been the leader of the entire expedition. He was younger and considered generally more competent than Captain Sir John Franklin. The problem was the British Royal Navy was nothing if not a bunch of snobs, and since Francis Crozier was Irish and from a lower class than Sir John Franklin, he was not given the commission of leader of the entire expedition. But as I said, he could still lend his considerable competence to the success of this expedition. So they leave from Greenwich, England, on May 19, 1845. 
Now, if you look at a map of the world the way it's usually laid out, you'd think they went under the south of England and Ireland and sailed directly over to Greenland. The fact is, it was much faster, a better way to go, to sail north, up the coast of Scotland by the Orkneys, just south of Iceland, and then over to Greenland. They had a crew of 24 officers, 110 men. 134 men was the complement on these two ships. The ships stopped briefly in the Orkney Islands in northern Scotland, and then they travel on to Greenland. They're accompanied by two ships, the HMS Rattler, and then a transport ship named Barreto Jr. And even this passage from the Orkney Islands to Greenland was a difficult passage. It was lively. There was some rough seas and rough weather, but they made it in about 30 days. Once they were inside of Greenland, they sailed up the western coast to the Whalefish Islands in what's called Disco Bay. And don't worry, I'm not going to make any lame jokes about Disco Bay. That fruit is a little too low-hanging, but I have to avoid the temptation. So they stay in Disco Bay for a couple of weeks. The cattle that are brought over on the transport ship, the Barreto Jr., are slaughtered, 10 oxen, and the meat is packed on board the Erebus and the Terror to give the men fresh meat to avoid using their rations too early. The men also write their last letters home before trying to make the passage. And it's from these letters that we learn that Franklin banned swearing and drunkenness, that the men's mindset was generally very upbeat and optimistic, that they were excited about what they were about to face. Five of the men were deemed unfit to make the voyage. They were a little bit sick or something, and so they were sent back to England. These are the luckiest men alive. They were probably very disappointed to be sent back home, and it wouldn't be for two or three more years that they realized how lucky they had actually been. I want to talk for just a minute about the letters that were sent back in July of 1845 by some of the officers and crew members, because some of them are of great interest. They give you an insight into the characters on board these ships. If you watched The Terror, the series on AMC, then you remember that one of the most amiable characters in the series was a man named Harry Goodsir, first the assistant surgeon, who then became the chief surgeon aboard these ships. Harry Goodsir had originally signed up to be the naturalist on the expedition, but even though he was accepted to accompany them, he was appointed to be the assistant chief surgeon. So he works under a man named Stephen Stanley. Originally, he has a high opinion of Stephen Stanley. He tells his father that, look, Stanley is an excellent fellow. But by the time they reach Disco Bay in Greenland, Harry Goodsir is no fan of the chief surgeon. So this is what Harry Goodsir writes about the chief surgeon on the expedition. He says, quote, Stanley is a would-be great man who, as I first supposed, would not make any effort at work after a time. At present, however, although he knows nothing whatever about any subject and is ignorant enough of all subjects showing it more than any other person I ever met with in consequence of his speaking so much, end quote. So there you get a fairly negative opinion of the chief surgeon aboard the Erebus. Now, there was also a surgeon and assistant surgeon on the Terror, and Harry Goodsir seems to have a good opinion of the undersurgeon on the Terror. He says this, quote, Alexander MacDonald is a very good-hearted fellow and is very much better than either of the others, end quote. About the chief surgeon on the terror, he says, John Petty is a man who will do nothing unless to bring in money, end quote. We actually have several sources of attestation confirming the fact that Harry Goodsir was one of the most popular men on the ships and was actually invited to dine with Sir John Franklin himself most nights. We already quoted one of the letters from James Fitzjames regarding Captain Sir John Franklin. 
and how much he liked him. Here's a letter from Francis Crozier, the captain of the Terror. And again, if you've read the novel The Terror by Dan Simmons, or if you've watched the series, you know that Francis Crozier is the hero of those stories. This is what Crozier writes from Disco Bay to his friend Jack Henderson. Quote, Well, old boy, we were a long time getting clear of the coast of England and Orkneys. Our passage across was very boisterous. However, we are safely moored here and busy clearing the transport. How full we shall be. But I am still in hopes that we shall be able to stuff into her three years' provisions from the present time. Bergs are numerous this year. So in other words, they've already encountered several icebergs. Icebergs were numerous in 1845 when they made their passage between England and Greenland. And here's a letter from Captain Sir John Franklin himself, writing to his friend John Richardson. He said, The main point for us at present is to get as quickly as we can across the barrier of ice in Baffin's Bay. And it is satisfactory for all of us to know that we are in proper time for doing that. We must pray for the guidance of the Almighty in this, as in every part of our course, and having the hope of His protection and blessing, put forth our best exertions. The weather is now remarkably fine, and even warm on shore, so that the mosquitoes are troublesome to the thin-skinned members of our party. They are of the large kind, end quote. So from this letter, it sounds like their biggest problem at the time is the very large and aggressive mosquitoes on the coast of Greenland because of the warm weather. I can't help but find these letters a little bit heartbreaking. They're so optimistic and so positive. But the sad fact is that this is the last time any of these men would ever communicate with their family or friends again. Because those letters are sent off in mid-July, by late July, the ships are once again sailing toward the Lancaster Sound. The expedition is last seen by Europeans in late July 1845. Captain Dannett of the whaler Prince of Wales and Captain Robert Martin of the whaler Enterprise encounter the two ships in Baffin Bay. They report that the men on the ships were in good spirits. All seemed well. Optimism abounded. But from there, Erebus and Terra continued sailing west, and for all intents and purposes, they sailed into oblivion. The crew was never seen alive, and the ships were never seen above water by Europeans again. The people in England wait, and the winter of 1845 and 1846 passes without any word from the two ships. No reason to get nervous, though. No one really expects to hear from them. They're not going to make the run the first winter. They're probably going to have to winter in ice. That's what everyone expected, so nobody's nervous. Spring, summer, and then autumn of 1846 pass. And then the long winter of 1846 and 1847 passes. Still no word, not even a peep. Maybe some people are getting slightly nervous. The ice should have melted. The ships might have pushed through by then, but they still have enough provisions for another year. Lady Jane Franklin is worried, though. The wife of Captain Sir John Franklin wants the Admiralty to send a party out in the spring, just in case. That would give them ample time to find the sailors. But the Admiralty is not worried. In three centuries of British exploration, no party of that size has ever disappeared. It's just not heard of. There's no precedent. But by late autumn 1847, as the winter of 1848 is approaching, even the Admiralty is getting nervous. By 1848, they send out the first of many, many rescue and search parties. The Royal Navy offers £20,000 for the rescue of the Franklin Expedition crew. The disappearance becomes the talk of Europe, starting in 1848, especially in London. 
but other Europeans, Americans, Canadians, everyone's caught in the fever to search for and find the lost Franklin expedition. Over the next 20 years, more than 50 different parties, both public and private, were set out to find them. First, it was a rescue attempt, of course, but later, it was an attempt to salvage anything they could from the expedition to find the remains of the men lost in the expedition. And a lot of the impetus behind these groups going out was Lady Jane Franklin herself. She personally raised funds and campaigned and hired crews to search for her husband. All of the events around the disappearance of the Erebus and Terror were a complete mystery. It seemed that they had just, as I said earlier, they just sailed into oblivion. Nothing was heard of them. It was gone. Where did they go? What had caused the failure? What had happened to the men and the ships? Well, for years and years, not much was known. The answers when they did come would come in tiny little bits and pieces, these fragments that would come in from different expeditions. And it's only within the last five years that some of the biggest questions have been answered, like where did the Erebus and Terror end up? One of the first breakthroughs, one of the first pieces of any information whatsoever about the Franklin Expedition came in 1850 on a tiny island called Beachy Island. This is a 1.8 square mile wasteland. There was a group out searching for the Franklin party they found a stone cairn and three graves. Now, if you look at pictures of Beachy Island, you can see you could have seen this from a mile away. There is nothing on this flat little expanse of barren rock. Three graves and a stone cairn. In these three graves, they found Petty Officer John Torrington, Private William Brain, and Seaman John Hartnell. From the markers, it was apparent that as the winter of 1845 to 1846 approached, so that first winter that they had entered Lancaster Sound, as that winter approached, the ice began to collect, and Franklin had anchored his ship in this protected little cove around Beachy Island. During that time period, three of the crew members had died and were buried on Beachy Island. The men from the expedition had spread out onto the land of the island. They spent at least seven months waiting for the summer thaw. They were ice-locked for seven full months. And as a consequence, these searchers found some pretty telling items. They found hundreds of empty food cans. They also found a chronometer, a pair of snow knives, and a pair of gloves that were left out as if they were drying in the sun. This gave them evidence that the crew had abandoned the site rapidly. And we'll get to that in a second. But the graves are a fascinating story on their own. Because in 1984, the Canadian government allowed the bodies of these three men to be exhumed for analysis. And the results were, I would say, intriguing, but that's not strong enough. These corpses had been preserved amazingly well. You could still see the color of the men's eyes, the color of their hair, the style of their haircut. You could see the expression, which looked like a rictus or a grimace, on their faces. And maybe even more importantly, you could tell the cause of death. The cause of death was officially determined to be tuberculosis. Now that doesn't in and of itself betoken anything terribly wrong with the expedition. With that many men and tuberculosis being as common as it was in those days, you would expect some death, some fatalities, especially when you're facing grueling work in Arctic conditions. You're already weakened by tuberculosis, you may well die. These three had died of tuberculosis. That was not a warning, an alarm bell in and of itself. The other thing that they found, though, as they studied the tissue samples from these three that they had exhumed, was a very high level of lead, eight to ten times as high as the normal level. And there was some controversy. It was felt that maybe lead poisoning had led to the demise of the Franklin expedition. The source of that was attributed to the tin cans. Apparently, the order 
for the canned food had come very close to the time of departure for these expeditions. So the company canning the food had to work very fast. And as a consequence, the lead solder that sealed the cans was sloppy. It was piled up and dripping like candle wax down the inside of the cans. So lead poisoning at that time was feared to have contributed to the deaths of the Franklin Party members. We'll get back to that. So from these findings and the dates on the tombstones, it was apparent that Franklin had wintered at Beachy Island that first winter of 1845 to 1846. So sometime in the summer of 1846, it's apparent that the ice began to break up to the point that Franklin wanted to get away from Beachy Island, so they left in a hurry. It's apparent that Franklin circled around Cornwallis Island, for unknown reasons. Then they sailed about 75 miles west and steered the entire expedition south into what's called Peel Sound. You have to look at a map of this to understand what I'm talking about. But Franklin sails south down Peel Sound to the northern point of King William Island. Now, if you look at a map of the region, you'll wonder why they turned down Peel Sound. If you just follow the Lancaster Strait, if you just follow that waterway at about 74 degrees north latitude, you can go all the way from the east to the west. Well, the answer is simple. The Arctic ice flows down through the strait and blocks it. You can't get through the Lancaster Strait most times of the year. So the thought at the time was, among Franklin and others, that if you could take that southern route down Peel Sound, then you could dodge these ice flows and you could join up with other waterways that go all the way to the Bering Strait in the Pacific Ocean. What they didn't know were two very important things. One is that Peel Sound is variable from year to year. One year it can be clear and you can make the passage easily. In other years, it can be so choked up with ice that even modern icebreakers wouldn't attempt to go through it. The other thing that they don't know is that when you go down Peel Sound and you turn toward the west, you come to what's called McClintock Channel. And that is a major route for ice flow from the polar cap. So, back to the summer of 1846. Franklin and his men have left Beachy Island. They circle Cornwallis Island. They go about 75 miles west, and then they take what they think is the secret to making the Northwest Passage, which is the Peel Sound. They travel down the Peel Sound, and they arrive at the northern tip of King William Island. So again, you know when you sometimes look for the moment where everything went wrong, when the die was cast, the decisions made, and then all of the consequences that follow from it, all the dire outcomes can be traced back to that moment. Well, this is that moment. Franklin, Crozier, the crew are sitting at the northern tip of King William Island. They have a decision to make. Do they go to the right? Do they take the western side of the island, which seems to be more in line with a route to the west along the Northwest Passage? Or do they sail down the small channel at the eastern side of the island? Well, the answer seems obvious. To go east is to go backward toward England, so you take the west. If Franklin had chosen to go along that small channel to the east of King William Island, he probably would have succeeded in making the Northwest Passage. When Amundsen made the passage years later, that's the route he took. But unfortunately, not knowing which way to go, in uncharted territory, they chose to take Victoria Strait down the western side of King William Island and in so doing, sealed the fate of the entire expedition. The reason that the eastern route would have been better is because King William Island would have, to some extent, shielded them from the ice flows coming down from the polar cap. But by going west, they were essentially steering themselves into, I don't know, an ice apocalypse. 
And I just want to take a minute to talk about how sailors describe traveling through this area. Sailors say it's otherworldly. It's disorienting. I mean, imagine bobbing your way along through a thick soup of fog. You can barely see a few feet ahead of you, and all of a sudden you run up on an iceberg that's two or three hundred feet high that your ship could easily be broken up by. So that would be terrifying. Now, along with that, there are times where the white sea below and the white sky above for week in, week out, month in, month out, join such that you can't even see a horizon line. So you seem to be floating suspended in some kind of weird ether. In some conditions, of course, that would be beautiful. But going through it month after month, I think its charm would wear very thin. So the point is that that is what the Franklin expedition is traveling through. They decide to take the west side of King William Island. They can't see the ICM pass when they turn south. But once they run into it, they can't escape. Their ships become icebound. And there they would spend that winter icebound, about 80 kilometers off the shore of King William Island. Now, King William Island itself is nothing like Beachy Island. It's a very large island, about 5,000 square miles. I'll give you a little info about the climate. In our day and age, the average high temperature in the winter is negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 30 degrees Celsius. At night, that temperature routinely drops below 40 degrees, I'm sorry, negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 38 degrees Celsius. That doesn't include wind chill. That's just the temperature. In mid-July, the warmest time of year, the temperature can go up to about 50, 60 degrees in the day, but it still gets to be freezing at night. So that's the climate these men were trapped in for that winter. Temperature is routinely around negative 40 degrees at night. Any exposed skin could be frozen within a matter of minutes. So that's the climate. What about the opportunities to harvest game, to eat wild animals? Well, the island is actually known for a large population of caribou. But according to the Inuit, these large, boisterous, clumsy Europeans would have scared away all the caribou. There would have been no caribou in sight for the men of the Franklin expedition. Now, there are polar bear, and the men might have eaten a polar bear if they could have killed one. But the weapons that they had were completely inadequate to killing a polar bear. In fact, one of the search expeditions that came years later found a dead polar bear that seems to have died of natural causes. And in this dead polar bear, they found a musket ball that had barely penetrated the skin. And it is thought that the only people who could have shot that polar bear with a musket were the men of the Franklin expedition. So in trying to kill a polar bear, they had barely pierced its skin. So it's very unlikely that they could have killed a polar bear with the weaponry they had on hand. And of course, the Toonbuck was right out of the question. In the area, there's an abundance of seals, of course, but seal hunting is something that the natives had perfected over the course of many years. That is a skill that had to be honed. There were specialized techniques involving little trip wires that the natives would use to catch seal at the right moment. The Franklin men would have had no idea how to capture seals. They would have had no luck hunting for seals, and fishing in that area was dismal. According to a member of a search party that came in 1858, one Lieutenant Hobson gave a first-hand account of what conditions would have been like on King William Island. This is fascinating. He says, quote, Of animals, we saw only bears and foxes. There seems to be a good many of both. The latter are very tame. On several occasions, we had one within arm's length of different members of the party. One was killed by the harnessed dogs after playing around them for some time. And this is where he gets more to the point. He says, quote, There is not the slightest chance of a party subsisting by hunting on this shore. We saw no traces of deer or musk oxen. The only birds seen were a few willow grouse and some buntings. In speaking of animals, I should have mentioned lemmings. 
many of which were seen and one wolf that followed our sledges for a considerable distance. So there, according to Lieutenant Hobson in 1858, there's not the slightest chance that the Franklin party could have stayed alive by hunting on King William Island. But that is where the Franklin expedition had stopped at the northwestern point of King William Island. And as I said before, nobody at the time knew any of this. In fact, most of this information was not considered reliable until about 1858. Now, in 1854, Dr. John Ray, a Canadian explorer, is traveling in the Canadian Arctic, and he meets some Inuit who are carrying artifacts. He realizes that these artifacts could only have come from the Lost Franklin expedition. He sees that they're carrying two pieces of a telescope, a little wooden container, a match case, a pocket knife with a bone handle, a small leather working tool. This wasn't the cast-off garbage, like the cans that they had found on Beachy Island. These are personal items that Franklin's men would only have left behind if they were not there to care for them anymore. So they were obviously in some dire straits for these Inuit to be carrying these items. Dr. John Ray returns and writes a report to the Royal Navy about what he had found while he was traveling among these Inuit. He sends this report in 1854 to the Royal Navy. His report is very disturbing. It's a ghastly report. And this is what he says, quote, In the spring of 1850, while some Eskimo families were killing seals near the north shore of a large island named King William's Land, about 40 white men were seen traveling in a company southward over the ice and dragging a boat and sledges with them. They were passing along the west shore of the above-named island. None of the party could speak the Eskimo language so well as to be understood, but by signs the natives were led to believe that the ship or ships that they had traveled in had been crushed by ice, and that they were then going to where they expected to find deer to shoot. From the appearance of the men, all of whom, with the exception of one officer, were hauling on the drag ropes of a sledge and were looking thin, they were then supposed to be getting short of provisions, and they purchased a small seal or piece of seal from the natives. The officer was described as being a tall, stout, middle-aged man. When their day's journey terminated, they pitched their tents to rest in. At a later date the same season, but previous to the disruption of the ice, the corpses of some 30 persons and some graves were discovered on the continent, and five dead bodies on an island near it, about a long day's journey to the northwest of the mouth of a large stream, which can be no other than Back's Great Fish River. So these Inuit people reported that they had come across 40 men pulling sledges and boats who looked gaunt and thin and had purchased a piece of seal from them. And then later in that same season, before the ice had broken up, they had found 30 corpses somewhere to the south of where they had first encountered them. So it's obvious that these men from the Franklin expedition were making their way south in a desperate attempt to save their lives, to find food, and that most of them didn't make it. But the Inuit go on and their description becomes more and more disturbing as they go. Dr. Ray goes on in his report, quote, Some of the bodies were in a tent or tents, others were under the boat, which had been turned over to form a shelter, and some lay scattered about in different directions. Of those seen on the island, it was supposed that one was that of an officer, as he had a telescope strapped over his shoulder, and his double-barreled gun lay underneath him. From the mutilated state of many of the bodies and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last dread alternative as a means of sustaining life. A few of the unfortunate men must have survived 
until the arrival of the wild fowl at the end of May, as shots were heard and fresh bones and feathers of geese were noticed near the scene of the sad event. He goes on, quote, There appears to have been an abundant store of ammunition, as the gunpowder was emptied by the natives into a heap on the ground out of the kegs containing it, and a quantity of shot and ball was found below the high-water mark. There must have been a number of telescopes, guns, watches, compasses, etc., all of which seem to have been broken up, as I saw pieces of these different articles with the natives, and I purchased as many as possible, together with some silver spoons and forks, an order of merit in the form of a star, so a badge, and a small silver plate engraved, John Franklin, KCH. So the native peoples were carrying a silver plate with Sir John Franklin engraved upon it. He goes on, quote, None of the Eskimo with whom I had communication saw the white men, either when living or after death, nor had they ever been at the place where the corpses were found. But they had their information from natives who had been there. So in other words, these were second or third hand accounts. From what I could learn, there is no reason to suspect any violence had been offered to the sufferers by the natives, end quote. So this is obviously dire information. It's even scandalous information. The accusation of cannibalism this is the first time that it had been leveled against members of the Franklin Party, and it had come from the Inuit, from the natives. The interesting thing is the Royal Navy dismissed this information entirely, said you can't trust the reports of savages, not to be trusted. Never mind that every single thing in this report would be verified later on. And even though the Royal Navy dismissed this account, the salacious information made its way into the press. People were shocked. They could not imagine their Victorian countrymen resorting to eating each other. But this was the accusation. Subsequent findings, as I said, have verified these reports. So Dr. Ray sends off these articles and this information to the Admiralty. And the only two problems that Dr. Ray had with the information was first, that it was vague as far as where these events occurred. The descriptions given by the Inuit people were not specific, so he couldn't really pinpoint a location. The other is the time frame. They were describing a time frame five years after the Franklin expedition had left England. And that seemed almost incredible that these men could have survived in the Arctic for five full years. Nevertheless, he sent off his report. All of it became a little bit less vague in 1858. In 1858, Leopold McClintock, one of the men hired by Lady Jane Franklin to find her husband, came to King William Island. There he and his men, this is Leopold McClintock, he and his men made two important discoveries. The first discovery was a boat. Now, it wasn't one of the ships, but it was one of the boats that the men had mounted on sledges and were pulling down along the coast, just as the Inuit had described to Dr. Ray. The boat had been mounted on a sledge. It was rigged with harnesses. The men had obviously been pulling this boat down along near the coast of King William Island. The boat was loaded with artifacts, equipment, personal effects. But inside the boat were two more grisly findings. There were two dead men along with the other artifacts. The thought was that these were men who were too sick to pull the boat and that they had actually perished when the men had had to leave them behind. So a very sad testament to the conditions that these men were in. They had tried to save their own party members by pulling them in the boat, but when they had become too sick or had died and when the men could no longer pull the boat because they were too weakened, they had simply had to abandon them. The other thing that they found, 20 miles farther up the coast of the island, 20 miles north from where they found the boat, was a large cairn. Believe it or not, in all the search parties that had gone out, 
This is the first party that had encountered a large stone cairn. Inside the cairn was a metal can, and inside the metal can was a handwritten note. This note was the only written history that had ever been found about the fate of the Franklin expedition, so it was obviously invaluable. On the note were two writings dated about a year apart. The first writing was 28 May 1847. This was optimistic. This is what it says. 28 May 1847, HMS ships Erebus and Terra wintered, and then it gives their locations. Having wintered in 1846 and 7 at Beachy Island, and it gives the exact location, after having ascended Wellington Channel to latitude 77 degrees and returned by the west side of Cornwallis Island, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition. All well. Party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday the 24th of May, 1847. It then gives the name of the men who had left the note, which was Commander Gore, Lieutenant Desvaux. So from this note, it was apparent that everything was fine two years after the ships had left England. Spirits were high, all was well, Sir John Franklin was commanding. This was May of 1847. With that, eight men had left the ships. Just in case, they decided to send out eight men, eight good men, to inform the world where the ships were stuck just in case they didn't make it out the next summer, but nobody was too worried. So imagine the men of the Leopold McClintock party finding this note 11 years after it was written. It is the first time anybody had any definitive information about the movements of the Franklin party after they left Beachy Island. Written around that optimistic note of 1847, around the margins of the paper, written in the hand of Captain Francis Crozier himself, was a note dated almost a year later. That note was written in May of 1847, that first one I read. There was around the margins a separate note written on the 25th of April, 1848, spring of 1848. This is what Francis Crozier wrote, quote, Her Majesty's ships, Terror and Erebus, were deserted on the 22nd of April, so three days before, five leagues north-northwest of this point having been beset in the ice since 12 September 1846. The officers and crews consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier landed here. And then it gives the location. It goes on to say, quote, Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. James Fitzjames, captain of the Erebus, and F.R.M. Crozier, captain and senior officer, start on tomorrow, the 26th, for Baxfish River. So think for just a minute about what this note is saying. These ships had not moved in almost two years. The ships were still beset in the ice all through the winter of 1847 and 1848. Here it is, spring of 1848, and the ships had still not moved. What had gone wrong? Usually the polar ice melts during the summer and the ships could move. So everything was just fine during the spring of 1847. But early in the summer of 1847, the commander of the expedition, Captain Sir John Franklin, had died. The note did not say why. And the mood had turned decidedly sour as the ice failed to break up all through that summer and then through another long winter. The men became desperate. The party they had sent out of eight men had not returned. They had decided to abandon their boats early in the spring, so the 22nd of April, and then they were trying to make their way to Baxfish River, just as John Ray had reported. 
So of course, from all this, we can construct a pretty definitive and unfortunately pretty uneventful timeline. May 19, 1845, the Erebus and Terror with 134 men depart from England. They have a brief stop in the Orkneys. They arrive in Greenland at Whalefish Island in Disco Bay on July 4, 1845. They send five men home. There's now 129 men. They depart Greenland in late July. They pass whaling ships in Baffin Bay at the end of July, or maybe the first part of August, 1845. The first winter of 1845 and 1846 went more or less according to the plan. The ships were stayed in the ice near Beachy Island. Their supplies were intact. They had three years worth of food, 180 tons of coal. They were warm. They were well-fed. Once the ice melted, they continued en route. They first circled Cornwallis Island and then headed south down the Peel Sound. In August of 1846, or maybe early September, they had decided to turn to the west, down the northwest shore of King William Island, and that's where they became icebound. They wintered there eight kilometers off the shores. I think I said eight. it's eight kilometers offshore from King William's Island, 1846 through 1847. So that is their second winter in the ice. Early in that spring, just as a precaution, not thinking anything is terribly wrong, they send out eight men. These eight men leave a note in a cairn, and nothing more is known of their fate. Early in the summer of 1847, for unknown reasons, Sir John Franklin dies. He's 61 years old. He served in the Royal Navy for 47 years. April 22, 1848, after spending another unimaginable winter stuck in the ice. In fact, if you calculate those dates, it's almost 600 days. It's 590 plus days that these ships didn't move. How long does it take to lose hope? Well, finally, by the 22nd of April, 1848, the men abandon the ships. They load up their sledges and boats and start pulling them south, trying to make, and I kid you not when I say this, trying to make an 800-mile journey for help. On the 25th of April, the men find the cairn left by the former party and leave their own note. Crozier and Fitzjames leave their own note, and then they make their way south, and then Nothing more is known of them except what's reported by the Inuit about finding a camp full of dead men and pots full of the bones of dead men. As we said before, between 1847 and 1880, 50 or more expeditions, steam, sledge, sail their way, trying to find anything they can about the lost expedition. Very few of these parties are successful in finding anything whatsoever. And many mysteries remain. In fact, the Erebus and the Terror weren't discovered for well over 150 years after the Franklin Expedition disappeared. On the next episode, we'll talk about what we've learned recently. But we'll also talk about some of the mysteries, the controversies, and the unanswered questions that remain. We have some amazing insights to report from people who have researched the Franklin Expedition. But to this day, there are theories, there are controversies that abound. For example, what killed the men? If not all of them, what killed some of them? Was it scurvy, lead poisoning, hostile native people, botulism? There are a lot of theories out there. Did any of the men survive? Were all of these men men? Now that's an intriguing question, and the answer is fascinating also. Where did the ships end up and how were they found? What did they reveal about the movements of the Franklin party? Was this expedition doomed from the word go? Or did human error play a significant part in what happened to them? 
one of the big questions people ask is, why didn't they seek help from the local natives? Why didn't the Inuit help these starving men? And the most salacious rumor of all, what do we know about the cannibalism accusations around the Franklin party? So the next episode will conclude this. It will be a little stark, maybe a little bleak, but no more than you would expect from the Know Thyself History podcast as we conclude the story of the lost, ill-fated Franklin expedition. Hate to do that to you, but I have the same cough in my throat that everybody has had, so I'll have to cut it just a little short. 